On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if, it, if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they had all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And God, it is such a joy to come into your presence with a, a corporate body of one mind and one spirit. God, we confess that we are weak. We confess that we do need you because our bodies do fail sometimes our spirits even grow weak but thank you God for the promise that when we call upon you you will answer us and you will give us great and mighty things that that we do not even know and God that's what we pray for this morning I pray that your Holy Spirit would fall fresh from heaven I pray that you would cleanse our minds and our souls and our spirits of anything that would stand between us and you. God, may we not only hear from you this morning, but may, may we do what you ask us to do. God, come alive in this place. Come alive in us today. Thank you for your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. and Feel free to take a seat and invite you to open your Bible with me again this morning to the book of Mark, chapter 11, as we prayerfully uh, will complete this 
chapter this morning in our journey. Um, I love days like today. I love to celebrate days like Mother Day. And I know that with some people, this is um, a, a tremendously joyous time with other people. There may be some other kinds of emotions that are churning inside of you. But today we do celebrate moms. We celebrate uh, motherhood. And again, it's great to have a day in our country that we call Mother's Day. Um, just like we, we all have mothers, we all come into the world through uh, the, the design of God through mothers. We all have faith. Now, what we put our faith in is a big question, and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, faith is defined as uh, having complete trust in someone or in something. And we all do that. We all put our trust in someone, or we all put our trust in something. For example, uh, you, you have a particular bank or investment organization that you have faith in, trusting them to handle your money uh, as you agree that they're going to handle your money and maybe even grow your money. You have a particular grocery store or market that you put your faith in. And when you go there and shop, uh, you have faith in their food or their product, that it's going to be healthy, it's going to be economical. And so... You have faith in your vehicle that brought you here this morning uh, and, or, or takes you wherever you want to go in a particular destination. Uh, the point is we, we all have faith and it's critically important that you put your faith and your trust in the right source. Because if you put your faith and trust in the wrong source, you set yourself up to fail, you set yourself up for trouble. A few weeks ago, I had some extensive work done on my Honda Accord. And I left it here at the church overnight, feeling that my faith in where I put it, out here under the light, under the camera, was a safe place. Guess what? I was wrong. Tuesday night, we left small group, and my vehicle was there. At 5.08, according to our camera, someone pulled in with a wrecker, backed up to my Honda Accord, and pulled off with it. A thief stole my car from the church parking lot. Now, that's, that's the kind of world we live in. Unfortunately, my faith was in the wrong source when I thought under the light and under the camera, everything was safe. Well, we all have faith. What's the source of true faith, though? That's what we're looking for this morning. On this Mother's Day 2021, God's Word takes us there, takes us to our source of faith. In Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 33, you've heard it read. We have recorded there three more events in the last week of the life of Jesus. Jesus had commissioned his disciples to follow him to the cross. He had commissioned them to continue to live according to the values that he poured into them for three years or so. And then after his crucifixion and after his resurrection, he had faith that 
the values that he had poured into them were going to be strong enough for them to continue to live out those values after he died on the cross and arose again from the grave. And fortunately, we have the gospel today because his faith in them was well-founded. So look with me for the next few minutes at the three things about true faith that are pointed out in this passage. First of all, true faith in Jesus exposes hypocrisy. True faith in Jesus exposes hypocrisy. We saw last week in Mark chapter 11 and verse 11 that late on Sunday afternoon after Jesus had experienced a parade celebration coming from Bethany into Jerusalem on this final journey that he was taking toward the cross, we saw that Jesus walked into the temple court. Now, three years earlier, he had entered the same temple court on another Passover. And remember, he had made a whip of cords and drove out those who, the scripture says, had turned God's center of worship into a commercial center. He drove them out. How quickly we forget sometimes the lessons that Jesus teaches, because this is just three years later. He comes back into the same temple, and the same practice had been reestablished. He walked into this temple court, looked around, and walked out, led his disciples two miles down the road to Bethany. And that's where we pick up today in verse 12. Verse 12 says, the following day, that would have been Monday, on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So Jesus cursed this fig tree. From, from the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus, he, he often used object lessons to teach critical values to his disciples. And Jesus cursed this fig tree for a specific purpose. Uh, I'm sure you're very aware of many of the miracles that Jesus did. This is the only miracle that Jesus performed that was negative. It had a negative result. Other miracles that we've seen over this study of the book of Mark have revealed that, that Jesus cast out demons and he calmed storms and he healed people who were lame and he healed people who were blind and healed men and women who were sick. These were all very positive results to the miracle that he performed. But this negative miracle served a very specific purpose. It demonstrated the fact that the people of God no longer were effective in representing God in the world. They no longer were producing godly fruit in their life and in their worship. Now, I can't help but ask the question as I look at Jesus who 
cursed this fig tree to give us an example of what it looks like to look healthy on the outside, but not be producing godly fruit from the inside out looks like. So Jesus left cursing of the fig tree and he goes to Herod's temple. Herod's temple was a massive creation. It was divided into four courts. The court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of the Jews, and the Holy of Holies. Four different parts of the temple court. The largest part of the temple court was the court of the Gentiles. God had called Abraham and said to Abraham, Abraham, I want to set you apart, listen to this, to be a blessing to the nations. God called Abraham to be a special person, to start a family line that would point people toward knowing God and point people toward worshiping the true and living God. The nations, all the people of the world. And so because of the, the hatred that had developed over the years for Jews against Gentiles, the religious leaders of the Jewish world hated the Gentiles so much that they had taken this large part of the temple court and turned it into a place of commerce. Had defiled it with selling sacrifices to fill their own pockets, to line their own pockets with money. They took up the, the space that was supposed to be set aside for people worshiping God and praying, and they were using it for their own purposes, for commerce. And Jesus couldn't stand that. Look at verse 15. They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple, and he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Friends, Jesus got angry. Jesus got angry because the place that God had set apart for heartfelt worship from a large group of people, the Gentiles, was being contaminated. And Jesus condemned the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders who were supposed to be pointing the nations, all the nations of the world, toward true prayer and true worship of God. Their hypocrisy had become a total stumbling block to worshiping God. And Jesus exposed their hypocrisy. Again, Israel had been chosen by God to be the people of God, which meant they were supposed to be showing people what it looked like to know God so that other people would want to know the true and living God. But they had filled the temple court designed for the Gentiles to worship God with so much commerce that there was no space to worship. There was so much clutter and chaos going on in that part of the temple 
that worship could not effectively take place. So for purposeful life to be restored, revival was needed among the Jewish leaders, and Jesus took charge. He got mad. I pray today that you and I will get mad at the things that God gets mad at. Anger is a, an emotion that God has given us to be used appropriately. And when God is angry at something, we need to be angry at what God is angry at. I wonder also if there's anything cluttering your life that would keep you as a believer from exposing who God really is to the world. Believers today are supposed to be the temple of the Spirit of God. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. How's it going? I have to ask myself, and I want you to ask yourself, are you using your body to show the world what it looks like to know and walk with God? The way you treat your body, the way you treat the temple of God which is in you, which the Holy Spirit resides inside of, are you pointing people toward a relationship with God through the love of Jesus? 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. The temple of God, a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. For it, it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Your body today has been designated by God if you are a believer. For God to use your body to point other people toward loving him through Jesus. So is there anything contaminating your life today that Jesus needs to drive out of your life? Any thoughts? Any feelings? Any actions that are not representing the true and living God well? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And glorify the Father who's in heaven. What a privilege. But if Jesus walks in our life today. And sees what's going on with our bodies. And inside of our lives. What would he drive out? What would he need to drive out of our life in order to make us usable? And attractive? To showing people who God really is. Saying you are a follower of Jesus and not making all of life about Him is classic hypocrisy. And that's what Jesus was attacking 
by condemning the fig tree and by driving the people out of the temple and cleansing the temple. I believe that one of the major reasons that the nations are not coming to faith in Jesus today is because the body of Christ, the believers in Christ, are not using our bodies as the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, if that statement is offensive to you, which it is to many people in the world today, then look at how the religious leaders of Jesus' day felt about it in verse 18. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. See, people don't want to hear the truth when the truth affects their habits. People don't want to hear the truth when the truth affects their lifestyle. People don't want to hear the truth when it affects their bank account, the way they earn their money and the way they spend their money. People don't want to hear the truth when it confronts their comfort. And that was the story of the religious leaders in, in Jesus' day. And I wonder, what about you? What about me? So Jesus was repulsed by self-serving religious practices. And he's no less repulsed at the practices that are self-serving in the name of following Jesus, in the name of religion, in our culture today. Verse 20 says, They passed by in the morning... They saw the fig tree withered away at the roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So here we are on Tuesday morning of the last week of the life of Jesus. He's just a few days away from going to the cross. And Jesus and his disciples couldn't help but notice that the tree that looked healthy on the outside the day before had withered and died and dried up and was good for nothing but firewood. So faith that is focused on the wrong source is dead. It produces no eternal fruit. It's hypocritical. The cursed fig tree and the contamination and misuse of the temple are warnings to you and me today, to all believers today, that we must make every effort to avoid living a hypocritical lifestyle. The eternity of souls of the nations is at stake. So again, I remind you, everyone has faith in someone or in something. And true faith in Jesus exposes hypocrisy. So make sure that your faith today is anchored in Jesus and that you are committed to making Jesus the priority of your life. Because true faith in Jesus does expose hypocrisy. Often when... When someone you love, like many of us have probably been around people that we love that have known they're going to die. And when, when someone has 
diagnosed and the prognosis is that they're soon going to die, a lot of times we want to remember the last things that they say. Many times they'll have words that they'll speak to us, words of blessing or words of encouragement and that kind of thing. Not only did Jesus want his disciples to recognize and fight hypocrisy, he wanted them to understand something even greater. He wanted them to understand the power of prayer. And so he tied the warning against hypocrisy to the encouragement to be faithful in prayer. So the second thing about true faith is that true faith in Jesus governs prayer. In verse 22, Jesus answered them, have faith in God. So prayer is surrendering in faith to God's perfect will. We, we have a strange idea about prayer. Well, we look at prayer and many times we think that prayer is just, you know, throwing words up to God when we get in a time of crisis. But Jesus is talking about a different kind of prayer here. Are you aware, now listen up, are you aware that the time and the substance that you pour into prayer is directly related to your true relationship with God? The effectiveness of your prayer life reveals your relationship, your true relationship with God. Now, now once again, in our culture today, with so much busyness that we have in this world, I know that cuts against our consciousness, that cuts against our um, uh, exposure to the reality of the kind of lifestyle that, that we live. God answers prayer that is offered to him with a commitment to true faith. Look at verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, there are a couple of things that this exposes about prayer. Number one, prayer is not really prayer unless we know the heart of God, unless we're seeking the heart of God to agree with the heart of God on the issue that we're praying about. A mountain-moving prayer is when you pray knowing that God wants to do what you're praying. And only God can accomplish what you're praying. So how long has it been? How long has it been since you prayed a mountain-moving prayer? A prayer that you knew was from the heart of God. And you knew that it could only happen if God accomplished it. That is what Jesus is talking about here with mountain-moving prayer. There's no limit to what God will do to fulfill His purpose. And for some reason, He has chosen prayer to be the key that unlocks the door to His heart. So the kind of prayer, the mountain-moving kind of prayer that Jesus is talking about here takes an investment of time 
It takes an investment of a relationship with God that's real and genuine. Where you know what God wants. And you're praying for God to do what God wants through you and through your prayers. There's a section of our world where some of the members of our church are called the 1040 window. The 1040 window is a section in North Africa and the Middle East and Asia approximately between 10 degrees north and 40 degrees north latitude. The 1040 window is often called the resistance block because it's a difficult place to share the gospel. Most of the world's Muslims and Hindu and Buddhist live in that 1040 window. In the 1040 window, 10 times the total population of the United States have never heard the name of Jesus. Now, I don't know what that does to you, but that is alarming to me. That 10 times the population of the United States of America, total population, have never heard the name of Jesus. The 1040 window is the home of the world's poorest people. The poorest of the poor. More than 8 out of 10 poor people in the world live in the 1040 window. So Jesus commissioned us to pray mountain-moving prayers. It's been said that the poor are the lost, and the lost are the poor, and the poorest countries of the world are the least evangelized countries in the world. So Palmetto Shores, will you join me in praying for the lostness, both here at home, but also in the places of the world where Ten times the population of the United States has never heard the name of Jesus Christ. See, compassion starts with prayer, and Jesus knew that. Jesus had compassion for the Gentiles. So he drove the contamination of worship in the temple that was hindering the Gentiles from worshiping. He drove them out of the temple. He condemned the fig tree, because it gave a picture of religious practice on the outside that had no content of the heart on the inside. And compassion for our world today starts with prayer. Who knows, there may be somebody sitting in this room. God is calling to join our team of missionaries in the 1040 window to risk your life to share the gospel. God may be calling some of you to get involved in giving of your resources like you've never given before so that the gospel can penetrate the lives of people in the tent. Have you been reading what's going on in India? India's in trouble. 350,000 people in the population of India today are dying every single day today from COVID-19 with no relief source at all in sight. Mass cremations are taking place with bodies being piled up and burned by the thousands and thousands. 
We have a person who goes on mission trips to India in our church, and he was sharing earlier this morning that they're running out of wood to burn people who are dying. And most of these people have never heard the name of Jesus. I don't know what that does to you, but that moves my heart with compassion. It moved the heart of Jesus with compassion, and I want to have the heart that Jesus had. So Jesus had compassion for the nations, and he wanted them to see a clear picture of who God was and who God is. So once again, there's a big difference in saying prayers and in praying, isn't there? I mean, anybody can say a prayer. But most of the time when people say prayers, they get no higher than the ceiling or the room that they're being spoken in. If you want to get to the heart of God, you have to join in wanting to pray mountain-moving prayers where you know what God wants and you go after what God wants with all the prayer in the world saying, God, like Isaiah prayed, God, here am I, send me, here am I, use me. If you want to do something about the gospel depravity in the world that starts with the person across the street from me or down the block from me or in school with me. Here I am, God. Use me. Use me. We have prayer books and prayer guides today that are excellent models for prayer. And they serve some purpose. But the purpose they serve should be to take us to the heart of God so we can know what God's heart is and pray the heart of God and trust God's power to work through us to bring about an answer to that prayer. Jesus identified the number one hindrance to faith-based prayer in verse 24. He said, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. For whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Serious business. Are you aware that God does not forgive you if you're not willing to forgive other people? The other side of that is, to the degree that God has forgiven you, you have the capacity and the responsibility to forgive other people. Answered prayer comes to believers who forgive like God forgives. Now here, here's the deal. Here's the issue. Unforgiveness is sin. Any sin blocks your relationship with God. But one of the biggest traps in the life of believers is not forgiving other people, which blocks your ability to have your prayers answered and even have your sins forgiven. Jesus could not be clear on this. He said, remember this, just as God forgives, forgive everyone else. If you have anything against anyone, what is anything against anyone? <laughs> it's anything against anyone. Anything against anyone. You say, but Ronnie, you, you, you don't understand what they did to me. Ronnie, you don't understand what they said about me. 
Ronnie, you don't understand what they did to my child. Anything against anyone. Jesus said, if you're a true believer, then you will forgive as you have been forgiven. I'm reminded of Corey Ten Boom at this point. Corey Ten Boom, you can Google C-O-R-I-E-T-E-N-B-O-O-M. And you can see hundreds of stories like this. But Corey Ten Boom was one of my heroines in my early faith. In 1947, after World War II, after Germany had been defeated, Corey Ten Boom was from Austria. She had watched her mother and father and her best friend in the world, her sister Betsy, tortured and killed in German concentration camps. She saw it. She was there with her own eyes. Fortunately, she survived. She talks about in 1947, she was leading a Bible study. She was giving her testimony. And in that talk, she asked people to extend forgiveness to other people. She said, when we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. She encouraged people to forgive. And at the end of her talk, people got up and were beginning to leave. And all of a sudden, she saw this man coming down the aisle toward her. And immediately, she began to have flashbacks of her time in prison. It was the prison guard who had tortured her, who had killed her sister, her mom, her dad. She said the man got closer and those, those pictures were flashing through her mind and she had just got through preaching a message saying, forgive and your sins will be separated from you and cast into the deepest sea. He got closer and the guard came up to her and said, you mentioned the prison camp. I was a guard in that prison camp. God has forgiven me. I've been saved. I've been set free from my sin. But I want to ask you, as he stuck out his hand, I want to ask you to forgive me. She said the hardest thing in the world she had ever done. And she couldn't do it in her own strength. She said, God, please give me strength to reach my hand out to this man. And so as he reached his hand out, she reached her hand out. And she said, a healing kind of salve went over her shoulders and down through her body as she looked at the man in the eye and said, Sir, I forgive you. She said after that, forgiveness should have been easy. But a few years later, some friends of hers in the church said some things about her that were just not true. And she was angry about that. And so she said, God... I want to forgive them. And so she prayed and asked God to forgive them, but she kept waking up at night thinking about it. And so night after night after night, she woke up in the night thinking about it. So finally, a friend of hers came and visited with her one day, and they went to church, and the friend pointed and said, isn't that the couple over there who were saying unkind things about you? She said, yes, and I've forgiven them. She said, but... Have you told them that you forgive them? She said, yes, I've told them that I forgive them, but they keep saying, we don't even remember it. We don't even remember what you're talking about. And she said, I know that it was true because I have the letters in my desk drawer. 
And the friend said, why are you keeping those letters? And I pick up there. Corey, my friend, slipped his arm through mine and gently closed the drawer. Aren't you the one whose sins are at the bottom of the sea? And are the sins of your friends etched in black and white? For an anguishing moment, I could not find my voice. Lord Jesus, I whispered at last, who takes all my sins away. Forgive me for preserving all these years of evidence against my friends. Give me grace to burn all the blacks and whites as a sweet-smelling sacrifice to your glory. Is there anyone that you need to forgive? Because as Jesus said, forgiveness opens up the door to build a bridge between the broken relationship that you have with God, that you're allowing that unforgiveness to keep separated between you and God. Finally, the third lesson Jesus teaches us through this incident is found in verses 27 to 33. True faith demonstrates the authority of Jesus. And in verse 27, they came again to Jerusalem and he was walking in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, But by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Now, there are some questions people will ask you about your faith, hopefully, when you live out loud for Jesus, there, there are some questions that people will ask you that you ought to answer. But when someone is just trying to trap you, like these religious leaders were trying to trap Jesus, Jesus didn't mess with answering their questions. In fact, he answered them back with a question that they knew they couldn't answer. So in verse 31, they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, here's the question of authority, and this is important. This is really, really important. Who is the authority in your life? For these religious people, obviously, verse 32 tells us that they were afraid of the people. The authority in their life were other people. Authority determines how you make priority decisions in your life. It's very important. And if Jesus is the authority in your life, then He needs to be the priority in your life in every area of his temple, and that is your body, in every area of his temple, can a person see in your life 
The love of Jesus that produces joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. Who or what is the authority of your life? Are you more interested in pleasing people or God? Are you more interested in status on social media or your status with God? Are you more interested in power positions or position with God? Are you spending more time on self-interests or spiritual interests? Who or what is your authority? See, when Jesus is the authority of my life and your life, my life and your life is based on relationship rather than behavior. Now, behavior is important, but behavior comes after the relationship that I have in my heart with God is right, is properly aligned. The mistake that the religious leaders of Jesus' day made was a question of authority. And that's why they went there with the question to Jesus. The rich young ruler that we studied about in Mark chapter 10 the challenge in his life was a challenge of authority. Go sell all that you have. His authority was his stuff. And it kept him from the kingdom of God. So the Pharisees asked Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? And that emphasized that they were more interested in the doing part of religion than the relationship with God. Just two days later, these religious leaders were going to have their way with Jesus. They were going to take him to a cross and have him put on that cross and killed. And they thought that was going to be the end of it. But that really is what proved the authority of Jesus. Because he only died on the cross and was placed in a tomb. And on the third day, the real authority of Jesus was revealed. And that's the authority that you and I need in our life today. His authority, the authority that can go to a cross that he didn't deserve to go to and hang there and die and shed his blood to pay the price for the penalty of your sin and my sin made him the authority of eternity. And when he arose from the grave, he gave us the authority over the greatest fear in, world, in the world, and that is the fear of death. So today, I want to challenge you to join me in making Jesus the authority of your life so that he can bring life and hope and relationship with God that is meaningful and real into my life and into your life. There are three application points that I want us to take home with us today, and I want you to really think about these things. First of all, make sure that your faith is in the right source, and that right source is Jesus. Do you know Him? What does that mean? That means that you have admitted your sin of selfishness and self-righteousness, self-control of your own life, You've admitted that sin and you've committed your life 
to Jesus by asking him to forgive you of your sin and you repent of your sin and turn away from it and turn to making Jesus the authority of your life. That's what it means. The religious leaders of Jesus' day had faith, but it was in the wrong source. Fortunately, I found my stolen car. I drove down Peachtree Road, and it was there under the 31 Bridge. The thieves had stolen the catalytic converters off my car. Started up, it sounded like one of these motorcycles some of you drove to church today a hundred times louder. And it's going to be costly to get it fixed, but it can be repaired. And that's the story of your life. Your sin has cost you your relationship with God, but Jesus paid the price for you, costly, so that you can be set free from the penalty of your sin and brought into living relationship with Jesus. Secondly, make sure that the authority of your life is Jesus. He, he paid the ultimate price. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Make sure the authority of your life is Jesus. And thirdly, make prayer for the nations a priority in your life. Are you praying for the person who's your one to come to know Christ? Are you praying for missionaries around the world? as they share the gospel? Are you praying that God might send you to be his hands and feet to someone who needs to see Jesus? God, I thank you today for calling us to be committed to you and to make you the priority of our life. God, I thank you that you are Lord. You are the king of this world. And I pray that you will give us a conviction in our heart that from wherever we came into this place today in our relationship with you, that today we might be willing to repent of our sin and turn away from our sin and turn to you and make you the highest priority in our life. God, be the king of my life today. And I pray that will be the prayer of every person's life who hears you calling them to yourself today. In Jesus' name now, we continue to worship you as the King of our life. Let's stand together and continue to worship.